pick up your Bibles and uh, turn, if you would, to Ruth chapter 4. So that portion of scripture that we read just a few moments ago, Ruth chapter 4. Okay, for the benefit of those people who have not been out over the past couple of weeks, or for the benefit of those people who have been out over the past couple of weeks, but have slept peacefully and soundly through the sermon, uh, let's think about what we've seen so far in the book of Ruth. Well, we've talked about kind of a sleepless and sleepless in Seattle and films like that, haven't we? Um, and, and Ruth's not really a, a, a romantic comedy as such, but the book of Ruth is definitely, it's certainly a love story. So, Naomi and Ruth, they begin this book in a sort of terrible predicament. They return to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem, and they sort of come back in dire straits. They're a couple, Naomi and Ruth, a couple of people got no money at all. They've got nothing, no future. Then what happens? Then, of course, God arranges things perfectly so that Ruth meets the man of her dreams. She meets this handsome guy. She meets this uh, respectable businessman, Boaz, who clearly has a bit of a thing for Ruth too. And then we saw, do you remember what we saw last week? We saw that Ruth took a bit of a risk, didn't she? She went down to the fishing floor. She went to see Boaz. And she, let's see if we get this right. She suggested that he propose to her. And it was a suggestion that Boaz kind of liked the sound of. So that's where we are. That's where we've got to in this uh, love story. Okay. Right, this evening, this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to look, God willing, at all of this last chapter. We're going to look at the whole chapter and we're going to consider just a few things about how this wonderful love story ends. Okay, so let's just make a start. Let's jump in and think about a first aspect that we see here. This is our first point, okay? We see here the commitment to the Word of God. We see the commitment to the Word of God. Okay, um, years ago I was invited to go and preach in this huge church, you know, big congregation in Inverness in Scotland. You know the sort of thing, the pastor was away for the weekend and he just needed any old numpty to come and and fill the pulpit. So I got the phone call after quite a few other people, I would have thought. And uh, I went up, you know, I was was delighted to go and I went up and I remember to this day, I remember the text that I was going to preach on or I did preach on and it was Nehemiah chapter 8. Okay. And I got to the church, I was all excited about this opportunity, and it was great, and I got to the church, and just before I went up to the pulpit, uh, somebody in passing sort of just spoke to me and uh, said yeah, that their pastor was currently preaching through the book of Nehemiah. 
and that their pastor had just preached on, I think that the previous Sunday, he had preached on Nehemiah chapter 8. And I just, I felt awful. I felt sick to the stomach at this. And I remember sort of standing in front of the congregation, you know, during the service, just after the reading, you know, where the penny drops for the congregation. This is going to be my text too. And I remember sort of standing there thinking, right, I have to say something about this. I can't just let this slide, you know. Something has to be said because everyone was thinking the same thing. There was this huge elephant in the room. And I guess, you know, there's something similar going on with the book of Ruth, isn't there? Because all the way through the book of Ruth, since we started this book, there's been mention and repetition of a term, the term kinsman redeemer. And up until now, we've just not tackled it, have we? We haven't really sort of mentioned much about this kinsman redeemer. It's not something that we've spoken about. It's something that we've let slide. And it's something I think that we really have to, if we're going to understand chapter 4, it's something that we do have to say something about just now. So, what was, what is a kinsman redeemer? If it's mentioned so often here, what is it? Kinsman redeemer. Well, in Leviticus 25, God's word makes provision for the poorest people in society, and it does so in what is called leveret marriage. Now, the boys in a congregation, the guys here, okay, <laughs> see what you think about this. See what you think about Whatever it matters. Because it meant that in ancient Israel, if a man died and he left a wife, okay? If a man died and he left a childless widow, it became the responsibility of his brother to step up to the plate, if you like, and to marry his brother's widow. And any sort of subsequent children of that new a marriage, that new relationship, those children would actually be deemed by society as belonging to the dead guy. So these, these new kids, if you like, they would actually belong in theory to the sort of dead guy they would inherit his name and his property. Okay? And then on top of that, follow me here, on top of that, the situation is even more complicated in Ruth because here we're also dealing with property laws that came about in Deuteronomy 25, where if, if people like Naomi, you know, people really the poorest of society, if they had to sell their land, if they had to sell their field because of poverty, it was encouraged by God's word that they had to try and keep that within or sell that to family members. Right? And in both instances... The guy who sort of steps up to the plate, the guy who marries his, his brother's widow, or the guy who buys the property from his family. In both of those instances, that guy would be known as the kinsman redeemer. Okay, so we get it, don't we? We know now definitely what a kinsman redeemer was. And that's fine, but really the question is, 
How does that help us to understand what we've got in chapter 4? Well, think about this guy Boaz, just for a second. Think about his situation. What is happening with Boaz? Okay? Well, think about, think about the joy for Boaz. Think about the, the, the state that he is in, right? He has just had the girl that he is in love with. He has just had her come to him and say that she wants to marry him. Okay, so this is a guy, Boaz, just now in chapter 4, he's a guy who is just on cloud nine, isn't he? I mean, he's just seen this love for this girl reciprocated. This is a, this is a bloke who's walking on air, you know? Boaz is a chuffed guy. She loves me, you know? So, surely, what we would expect when we get into chapter 4 is to see Boaz boosting around the place, trying to arrange this marriage as quickly as possible. You know, that's surely what we would expect to see. You know, it would be, Ruth, you pop down to the florist and get the flowers sorted out for the wedding, and I will go down to the hotel, and I will make sure that the reception's booked, and all that sort of stuff. That's what we'd expect to see, sort of, in in, in Ruth chapter 4. But it's not... I mean, it isn't. I mean, look, look what we see here. What does Boaz do? This girl loves him. He's walking in air, but he goes and he waits for this kinsman redeemer. He goes and he waits for this nearer relative. He goes and he waits for the one who has more of a claim on Ruth than he does. Now, do you see what's going on here? Boaz knew what God's law required and Boaz was determined to live in obedience to that. I mean, Boaz was a guy who who, who knew what Leviticus 25 says and he knew what Deuteronomy 25 said and he was determined to be obedient to that, determined to be obedient to God. Just think about that. Put yourself in Boaz's shoes for a moment. Okay? Surely the temptation would be just to forget about this other guy. You know, surely the temptation would be to forget about the, you know, the nearer redeemer. You snooze, you lose, you know? Surely the temptation would be to marry Ruth as quickly as possible because, let's face it, By doing what he does here, he risks losing Ruth, doesn't he? I mean, he risks losing this this woman, the love of his life. But it doesn't matter. In it all, through it all, what we've got is a man who is determined to live in a biblically orientated way. It's really quite something, isn't it? I mean, it's incredible. And do you see, friends, that the, the lesson that is there for us? You know, when faced with a, a major life decision, Boaz's main concern, he's got this major life decision in front of him. And his main concern is to tackle that biblically. 
And that's exactly what, what we have to do too. You know, if, if we've got a, a major decision on the horizon, okay, if there's a major decision in front of us, whether it is financial, like it was, I guess, in a sense for Boaz, whether it's a business decision, like it was for, for Boaz, if it is a family decision, if it is a decision about love, a decision about a relationship, a decision about marriage. We, as Christians, we don't approach that or go into it like the world does. We don't just jump into these things, do we? You know, we don't just make big life decisions because they kind of feel good. We don't make a decision because, well, it kind of feels right. That's not what we do. We respond to major decisions in our life by knowing what God's word says and then by living that out. So I would say to you tonight, if you do have a significant decision ahead of you, I mean, start by wiping the calendar. That's where you start. I mean, free up some space and use that space to binge in the word of God. If you've got a major decision, then you go to scripture and you pray over scripture. And what you do is you let God's word shape how you live. Because if you do that, we're not saying that everything's going to pan out exactly as you might want. It's not what we're saying. Not at all. But if you do, as Boaz does here, and if you demonstrate biblical restraint, if you demonstrate biblical obedience, then God is going to honour that in the same way as he honours Boaz here. And we see in chapter 4, most clearly, a thorough and an admirable commitment to the word of God. A commitment. God's word. Okay. Let's move on. Let's think about a second heading. Let's think about the contract at the city gate. Okay, we've seen the commitment to God's word. Now, the contract at the city gate. Okay, so currently, the leadership of this congregation... Uh, we are in discussions with the Church of England about the lease of uh, this property here. Okay, and I tell you, it is, uh, it is the most complicated, it is the most miserably complicated thing there has ever been. I think I've been here in the congregation for probably just over a year. And I think for every single deacon's court meeting that we've had as a congregation, this lease has been uh, on the agenda. We've been discussing this lease uh, uh, constantly, it seems. I sort of wake up in the morning and it just feels like there's a sort of delegation of the Church of England in the room sort of waving this lease in my face. I can't get away from it. But despite that, in this second point, I think... We need to consider the ins and the outs of the transaction, the ins and outs of the contract that emerges between Boaz 
on one hand and this nearer redeemer. And the first thing that we've got to see is that this is a proper purchase. Right? It's a proper purchase. And this thing is real. And everything is done properly in this transaction. You see, what happens is Boaz goes to what's called the city gate here. And this is obviously the entrance to the city, but it's the place where, where people would gather. You know, it's like the town hall type space. It was the space where all these sort of legal arrangements were conducted. And what Boaz does is he gets these ten elders together, doesn't he? You notice that when we read through it? And think of these guys, these ten elders. They weren't like a jury. Think of them more as witnesses to a sale. These guys, they were there to make sure that this sale was done and it was done correctly. Now what happens? Well, Boaz offers the land to the nearer redeemer. And this guy's initially keen, but then he soon pulls out when he realizes that not only is he going to have to buy a field, he's actually going to have to buy Ruth as well. And then Boaz, given the opportunity, he steps in and he buys the field. He buys Ruth. He acquires her as part of the deal. And then we've got everything is kind of signed, sealed and delivered with this very strange sandal swapping routine. It uh, does sound pretty strange. But it is a proper purchase. But no, it's also a costly purchase too. It's a seriously costly thing that's going on here. I mean, that's the whole reason that this nearer redeemer doesn't really want to get involved, isn't it? I mean, he knows, first of all, he's going to have to open his wallet to buy the field, which is going to cost a lot of money. Then if he carries on with this, he's going to have to, he's going to, have to pay for a wedding. He's going to have to marry Ruth and keep Ruth. That's going to cost a lot of money. Then if they've got any kids, well, they're not really, remember, they're not really going to be his kids. And it means that he's actually going to lose the field too. So this is expensive. And he doesn't want a part of it because it's going to cost an awful lot of money. But not Boaz. I mean, think about Boaz. Boaz can care less about the cost. Boaz loves this girl. I mean, Boaz loves Ruth. So he doesn't care. He doesn't care about his reputation. He doesn't care about the financial commitment of this. He does not care about the cost. He loves her, so he goes ahead. Now, we could... Apply that in a number of ways. We could spend a lot of time just now appealing for the boys and the guys of the congregation to be a bit more like Boaz. Okay, we could spend time pointing out that like Boaz, that we need to be men who are willing to take the initiative. That we need to be men who are willing to be caring 
and loving guys. We need to be men who are willing to be biblical, men who are willing to be courageous. We could spend time saying that the church in the UK definitely needs its boys to become men, and men like boys. We could spend time looking at that, but we are not going to. Instead, think about this. Why on earth is pretty much a whole chapter of the Old Testament devoted to a very strange transaction involving Boaz and Ruth? Really? I mean, why has God preserved this. Why has he preserved this very, very strange purchase in the Old Testament? Well, we answer that with another question, okay? And that is, do you see what your Savior has done for you in Ruth chapter 4? Do you see it? Jesus Christ has done this and so much more. Jesus Christ has looked upon this sort of pitiful state of humanity. He stepped in, yes, he has taken the initiative, yes, but he has purchased for himself a people that he loves. Your salvation, if you are a Christian this evening, your salvation is a transaction. It is a purchase. And more than that, it is also the most costly of purchases. I mean, God bought you at great personal expense to himself. You see, if you're a Christian tonight, Jesus Christ bought you. And the currency that he used was his very own blood. The currency that he used to buy you was his very own life. And friends, just as this purchase here in Ruth chapter 4 was kind of announced by Boaz, wasn't it, to the, to the crowd in Bethlehem, well, so too, on the day of judgment that we looked at earlier on, your purchase by Christ, it's going to be announced. You know, it is going to be publicly Proclaim that that new relationship, that that marriage, it's going to be shouted aloud. And the crowd here, you know, the crowd that gathers in Bethlehem at the, the, the city gate, well, it is nothing compared with the multitudes that are going to gather at the gates of heaven and they're going to hear about what Jesus Christ has done for the people that he loves. You know, Christ is our redeemer. He has redeemed us. And that is amazing. But he has also bought us. He has purchased us. And at great, great personal cost. So the second point is this contract at the city gate. Okay, so we, 
we've seen Boaz has this commitment to, to, to God's word and its demands in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, then we see something of the details of, of what he's done in making this purchase of the land and, and, and Ruth. We close this evening with a third thing. I'm going to close with this. Let's think about the celebration at the end of the story. Okay? The celebration at the end of the story. Right, I'm, I'm no expert in these things at all. Um, but in my limited exposure um, to love stories, I can see that they, there seems to only really be one of two types of endings to love stories. You either get a sort of Romeo and uh, Juliet type of, of tragedy, or you get the, the other end of the, you know, you get the happy ever after type scenario. And I'm a bit of a softy at heart. So I prefer the, the sort of the latter, the happier ever after scenario, which is, I suppose, just as well, because that's what we've got in Ruth chapter 4. You see, the book ends, Ruth ends a happy note because there's a return. There's a return to two things. There is a return to the main theme of the book, which is the sovereign providence of God. And there's also a return to one of the main characters of the book. There's a return to Naomi. Isn't there? I mean, you know, we follow the story and, and Ruth and Boaz, eventually they get it together and they get married and then they have a child. But the book doesn't end with them. The book ends by going back and focusing on Naomi. Now, she started the book, didn't she? With that sort of return with Ruth from, from Moab. The, the, the book starts with Naomi, and now it ends in the same way. And note how that brings everything to this perfect conclusion, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know if you were here a couple of weeks ago, but do you remember what, what Naomi was like a couple of chapters ago? I mean, she was moaning. She really was. You know, she was empty, is what she said. She was angry with God. But look, in his providence, now she's as full as she could be. She's got everything she could ever need in front of her. Remember what she was like? She was bitter. Oh, she was bitter. Remember what she said? Call me Mara. She said that to the women of Bethlehem. But look now in the providence of God. These same women, they are praising God. They're singing God's praises because of Naomi's joy. She was complaining, Naomi, about being left alone. Do you remember that? It was all me, 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 me. But not now. Now in the providence of God, she can see Ruth is better than seven sons. She was a woman who doubted in God's provision. And now look, in his sovereign providence, she's got everything. I mean, she's got a new family. She's got her land back. She's got a future, and we see even at the end, we see her bouncing her little baby grandson on her knee. 
I mean, it's just a marvelous ending, isn't it? I mean, it's a delightful, joyous, perfect end to this love story. And so, as we finish the book, can I just ask you, what are you going to take away from this? In all seriousness. You know, as we close what is a pretty short series on Ruth, what is going to stick with you from God's word? What is really going to impact your life? I'll tell you this. I would praise God if it were the main theme of this book that was to stick with us. I'd I'd praise God that if through this book that we would all understand that no matter what is happening in our lives just now, no matter what tragedies are happening, that we would see, yes, that God is over that. That we would really see that God is in that, that he understands, he is in control of that, he is working in that. Yes, we'd see that, but also that we would see that he is using that to bring us to a happy ending. You see, look at Naomi. God loved her, so he worked for her good. He blessed her to the extent that this little baby that she's bouncing on her knee, that little baby would be in the line of David. He loved her to the extent this little baby that's bouncing on her knee, God loved her so much that this little baby would be in the line of the coming Messiah. And friends, it is that that we've got to take away from this book. It's the fact that God is working for the benefit of those people he loves. And he is doing it through Jesus Christ. You see, it is Christ. It is in him that we have a redeemer. We know that. And it is in him that we have the one who is willing to purchase us at the cost of his life. And it is in him, it is in Jesus Christ. That everyone in this room tonight, everyone can have their happy ending so we close the book of Ruth we close it but we do so thanking God that it is not just Naomi and it is not just Ruth but in Christ is actually you and I that God is bringing from rags to riches Father, we do.